Chronicles. It's a it's really a book of roots. It's it's compiled and written for the Israelites who have returned from Babylonian captivity. They're coming they're coming back into their own territory once again, all right? So this is being written at a very different time. In fact, it could be that this is one of the the latest of the the books of the Old Testament written as far as the timeline goes, but it's written to those returning from exile to really remind them who they are. Because it may seem that Israel is a poor, small, weak nation that's on the fringes of just being completely overthrown and overtaken by, by enemy nations around them. They've been sitting in captivity for the last you know, 70 years. However, the reality is that their king, their God, is the king. And he's overall, he's ruling, he's continuing to call his people and he's got a, a purpose and a plan for them. So the message of Chronicles is that God is still with Israel just as much as he was in the days of David, in the, in the days of just kind of their, you know, prominent, powerful days. As much as God was with them then, he's still with them now. Okay, and so the royal and the priestly lines continue on even in the present day that they're experiencing now and so does God's promise to bless his people if they're faithful to him. And that's really why Chronicles is being written because a lot of the stuff that we read is going to be very similar to what we've seen already in other historical books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of overlap, a lot of similarities to these other books, but it's interesting that the earliest Hebrew title for the book of Chronicles translates as the things left behind. The things left behind, the Greek translators gave it the title things omitted. So in other words, as they're looking through the book of Chronicles, they're realizing, oh, there's some things here for us that we didn't get in the other historical books in Samuel and in Kings. And so there's things here for them that they're seeing that's different than what we've seen elsewhere. A lot of similarities, but also some things different. This was because so much of the content seemed similar to First and Second Kings, and so they changed this name now, Things Omitted or Things Left Behind. Now, I'm thankful here that as we go through this, God takes into account all things, all right? That he's bringing everything to reminder, and this is a, a, an important thing, is that he's wanting to bring to reminder the things here that are important to the people coming back from captivity to say, hey, listen, guys, I want to go through your history with you once again so that you see, first of all, why you were led away into captivity, the things that you did, but also to remind you what kind of people you're to be. And that's what Chronicles is being written for. It's written with a very spiritual perspective now so that God can say, listen, I don't want to see you go away into captivity again. I want to see you walking in the things that I have for you so God begins to lay out for them here in the book of Chronicles the things that are important. So let me look real briefly here uh, at you know some of the who, the when, the why, and the what of this book here. So first of all, we're not sure who exactly wrote the book of Chronicles. Jewish tradition assigns this book to Ezra, all right? Ezra the scribe, the priestly scribe. Um, and he lived in the 5th century. He led the second group. Remember, just as... Um, the people of Israel were led away into Babylonian captivity in three different deportations. Well, so too, they're going to kind of return in three different groups, all right? There's going to be, uh, the second group of people coming back is going to be led by Ezra here. So it could be that he compiled a lot of the material, and it could be that he picked it up from a lot of different writers and such, but it's simply common to just kind of call the writer of the chronicles as the chronicler, but many of Seem to think it's Ezra. That could very well be. Now, when was this book written? Again, like I said, the background of this writing is the return from Babylonian captivity. Like I said, took place under three different groups returning. First led by Zerubbabel, then by Ezra, and then by third person, Nehemiah. All right, we'll get to that book soon enough here too. And so it's safe to say that this book was written somewhere around 425 BC, just for those of you that like to kind of know the time frame we're dealing with here. Now, why... Was this book written? We've looked a little bit about this already. No doubt there were people sitting in Babylon, Jews that were born even in Babylon, that had no real recollection or, or, or connection to Jerusalem. 
and to the things that went on there. They've never seen the Holy Land. They've heard stories, no doubt. And now they're probably wondering, you know, if they're ever going to see things turn around. Is God done with us? Is what some of them, I'm sure, were, were thinking and, and assuming. But here this book has been written to show them that God's not done with them yet. God still has a, a purpose and a plan for his people Israel. And God wants to remind them to do something very important. To walk in obedience. In order to walk in obedience, they need to know what to obey. And it's that obedience that's going to lead to their blessing. So this book is meant to help them have a better perspective on what God has done and what he has provided for them. So, like I said, this book takes on a a much more spiritual tone and spiritual perspective than do the, the other historical writings that we have. Though there are a lot of similarities, Chronicles emphasizes that spiritual. So we're going to see a lot of things that are going to pertain to you know, the temple and to the priests and to holy things. And, and, and again, the David covenant is a big theme. And so all these things to remind them what God has established for them, what God wants them to continue to walk in. Now, if kings composed after the final collapse of the kingdom in 586 BC concentrates on how sin leads to defeat, then Chronicles coming after the two returns from exile, 537-458 BC recounts then from the same record how faith is the victory. One book, Kings, is going to talk about how sin leads to defeat, but here in Chronicles, we emphasize more how faith is the victory. Now, what are some of the things, again, that we're going to be looking at here? Well, this book involves the people of God. It goes all the way from Adam to Azel, but it focuses primarily on that line and lineage of David, all right? So Chronicles is going to really cover primarily the southern kingdom as First and second kings went through bouncing back and forth between northern kingdom and kings there and then the southern kingdom and kings there. Chronicles is going to be emphasizing primarily that of Judah. And and we only touch on things in the northern kingdom when it has a real pertinence to David and, and his family line. So again, it's dealing with the people of God, the promises that God has given to them because the promise, you know, wasn't looking so good. In light of Babylonian captivity, as they're hanging out there, they're thinking, how is God going to establish this covenant that he made with David? That he'll have a, a throne be established forever, right? And we'll get to that here tonight. But they're sitting there, they're remembering this promise of God, and now they're sitting in Babylonian captivity wondering, we got no king, there's no throne. How is this word of God going to be fulfilled? How is it going to carry out? It seems like it's already been nullified. Well, God's going to remind them here, listen, I'm not done with you yet. God's got a plan here. So it involves the people of God, his purpose for them. It involves also the temple of God. And again, this is where God was dwelling among his people. And these books refresh and remind the people coming back from Babylonian captivity, the importance of these things, the importance of pressing in with the Lord, because God established the temple to be a place where he would meet with his people, right? And so God's reminding them, listen, You want to stay on track, that's going to involve them meeting with me, focusing on me. And so God is bringing them back where they're going to rebuild the temple, where they're going to have, again, the priestly line coming into function and all the different, you know, practices going on there of just the worship of the Lord and renewing that covenantal relationship with God. And this book not only involves the people of God, the temple of God, but it involves blessings and judgments from God. The point is simple. Obey God, be blessed. Disobey God, and there's judgment that's awaiting you. And they've already lived that out. They've seen that God means business, right? That God's the God that keeps his word. So they've already seen that. They're coming back from captivity going, okay, this is a do-over now. I think that's so wonderful that God's giving them a bit of a mulligan here, right? Say, let's try this again now. Let's come back and let's reestablish ourselves. Obey, be blessed. Disobey, well... You've already been familiar with captivity. may happen again here. So again, just a reminder for them. Here's the outline we're going to be looking at as we go through this book. First of all, again, really centering around David's line here in, in the first book especially and, uh, and all through essentially. But here we're going to see in First Chronicles the rightful ancestry of David, chapters 1 to 9. And then chapters 10 to 29, we're going to see the royal activity of David. The rightful ancestry of David, chapters 1 to 9. The, the royal activity of David, 1 Chronicles 10 to 29. Now, 
We start out in this wonderful book, First Chronicles, going through all of these nine chapters, which is all a bunch of genealogies. Right now, I wonder how many people have had great intentions of like, man, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to get through it, and they get to like Genesis five, where all of a sudden it's like Adam begot, Adam begot, and it's like, oh my goodness, and then that whole reading plan just gets derailed because it's like this is boring. I mean, imagine they started in Chronicles, right? And the first nine chapters is nothing but so-and-so begot so-and-so. And this whole list of genealogies, that could be a bad way to start. But again, what I love about this is that God's a God that, that keeps records, okay? God knows everybody that's his. God knows everything that's going on. And so when I, I look at this, I realize that, that nothing and nobody gets forgotten, neglected, or left behind. Because again, for this Davidic covenant to be fulfilled, everything had to be traced back to David. So God's sitting here now in the very beginning saying, listen, don't worry about what I said because I've got a, a good list of what's happening and who's who. And who's connected to who. God sees, God knows, and he knows who are his. So I'm very thankful for that. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The, the sons of Japheth were, and it goes on. But let me just start here, and let's just look at a few of these names. Because I think, you know, biblical times, names had great importance and significance, unlike how they don't today, right? We're like, that name sounds really cool. Or that name sounds very unique. And we want to come up with names that nobody else's had a name before, and we're like, what were you thinking when you named that name? And it's like, well, it just sounded cool. Ten years down the road, you're like, what was I thinking? But So here we see the names have a, a great significance oftentimes, but more than that, this first couple verses are exactly what we see in Genesis 5, when God is given the genealogy first off in Genesis 5, tracing things right from Adam and on. And so these names are all exactly what we've seen in Genesis 5. And when we look at the meaning, the transliteration of these names, you come up with something very interesting. Look at what they mean here. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh, mortal. Canaan means possession. The Mahalalel, the praise of God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech means the powerful. And Noah means rest or comfort. Remember, when God gave that word to Noah, that... Uh, I'm going to judge the world. Well, many believe that Methuselah, the son of Enoch, and Enoch was taken up before the judgment came, and the Methuselah means his death will, shall bring him. Many believe that when he died, that's when that judgment of the rain coming happened. But remember, who's the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah. Lived, I think, 969 years. So here's God says, Noah, I'm going to bring a flood. But I'm not going to do that until Methuselah dies. And guess what God does? He allows Methuselah to live the longest life. What does that communicate to us? The mercy of God. That God's not willing that any perish. God's loving and kind. God's not, God's not a God that flies off the handle when things aren't going his way. He's a gracious, loving, merciful God wishing that none would perish. So many believe when Methuselah died, the rains came. For even the, the first time, and not only the rains, but the floods from the, 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 the system under the ground and all the you know water stored up there just began to burst through springs there. Well, here's what's interesting. When you put all these names together, here's what you get. Man is appointed uh, mortal possession, but the praise of God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the powerful rest and comfort. See, what... God is essentially doing is like in the very first list of names let me communicate the gospel to you because man it's appointed to die right but the praise of God is going to come Jesus Christ is going to come down and his death is going to accomplish something it's going to accomplish this powerful rest salvation comfort for all of us it's a wonderful thing to see how God communicates these things it's so wonderful to see God's overarching plan in all he does and how he communicates that through his word here well we're not going to be going through much of first 
uh, of these first nine chapters because it's a bunch of names. And, uh, well, we're going to leave it at that. But let me highlight a couple of things. Chapter 3, actually, we will touch on a couple of names here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Um, because this is getting into the family of David right now. And it says that these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, the second Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess, the third Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephatiah by Abital, the sixth Ithrim by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years. Remember, David's reign was 40 years altogether. And then these were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Also there were Ibhar, Eliashama, Eliphalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia. You get it, right? But here's the family of David. Now, a lot of names and a lot of people that... You've probably never heard it before. Like, oh, that was a son. Never heard that guy. Because there's only certain ones that really stand out. Oftentimes standing out because of either treason or just falling into some very, you know, gross sin. But there's a lot of sons that he had, as mentioned here. And it's interesting to note that in Chronicles, and this is what's cool, that we don't read about David's mistakes or sin. Samuel, kings, they'll touch on those things. It's real. The was not trying to hide anything. But here in Chronicles, we don't read of David's adultery with Bathsheba or the fallout in the family that occurred afterwards. We don't hear about David's murder uh, of, of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. We don't hear about Amnon's rape of his sister Tamar, Absalom's rebellion, Adonijah's attempt to make himself king. None of these are discussed in the book of First Chronicles, I feel kind of bad bringing them up even just tonight now to tell you that they're not there. I feel kind of like, well, maybe. But some might accuse Ezra now, if he's the writer, as kind of this big conspiracy cover-up. What's he trying to do? He's not being honest and telling us these things about David. But again, Ezra's writing to encourage a defeated people. The Jews didn't need to be reminded of their failure. They know what's caused them to be sitting in Babylonian captivity. They know they've erred. They spent 70 years exiled as punishment. They were all aware of their failures. Ezra's audience needed a pick-me-up. They needed a focus on the positive. And that's true of any person who's truly repentant, who's truly understood their sin, who's given it over to the Lord. Right? Some pastors think it might be their duty to constantly remind people of how sorry they are. Hey, we know how sorry and sinful we are. We need encouragement. We need to get our eyes off of our failures and focus on what Jesus has done for us. We need to see ourselves now in Christ. Because that's our position. It's exciting to me that the heir to David's throne, Solomon, God's chosen successor, was also Bathsheba's boy. The very one that he committed adultery with. It was God's way of redeeming David's sinful slide. Hey, listen, God hates sin, no doubt about it. God's not looking to just kind of sweep it under the rug. This sin was costly to David. The son conceived on that adulterous night, died shortly after his birth. But the glorious thing about God's forgiveness is that it lets us pick up at the point of repentance and start over. And that's what Ezra wants to say to these post-exile Jews, that if you can start over after Bathsheba, then you can start over after Babylon. There's still hope for you. And God's not done with you yet. In fact, through the Lord, you can start over after anything. Praise the Lord for that. Because our God is a God of second, third, infinite chances. As long as we've got breath. We've got room to repent and take it to the Lord and seek his forgiveness and he'll do that. He's faithful and just. So this story, this book is a great help and reminder for us to realize, man, I may have blown it. But when we take that to the Lord, man, God's not shelved you. He's not done with you. God will continue to do a work. And those things, man, they get removed. So far as he removed his transgression from you, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed his transgressions from you, they're no longer held against you. They're not, no longer going to be brought up. They're buried. Praise the Lord for that. 
And this book reminds us of that. Now, Nathan and Solomon, these are two sons that are mentioned here in this list of David's family here in chapter 3. And these are two important sons as it pertains to the lineage of David. Why? Well, because it was through these sons that the Messiah would be linked to. But there's a problem with the line of Solomon. All right? You'd think the rightful line, that's the line. But there's a problem that happened. You see, the 19th king of Judah, a man by the name of Jeconiah, he was a descendant of Solomon, also known as Jehoiakim or Orkonia, as Jeremiah, the prophet records. Well, this man, Jeconia, was pronounced with a blood curse that he would not have a descendant continue after him on the throne. That no longer now would there be a line from Jeconia which traced back to David through Solomon that would be on the throne of David any longer. Here's what Jeremiah 22.30 says. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Jeremiah. Now, if that be the case, how could a descendant of David then sit on the throne? How could the coming Messiah rule without breaking God's word? Because that is what God promised to David in the Davidic covenant that we'll get to later. Chapter 17, we'll get there, don't worry. That was the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that you will have a descendant and he will rule on the throne forever. But now, that line of David that's been in that ascension to the throne has stopped with Jeho- Jehoiakim, who would not have a, a descendant to sit on the throne any longer. None of his descendants shall prosper. You see, for centuries, that completely confused the rabbis. The crown was passed from father to son, and since Jehoiakim's son would never sit on the throne, God had a problem, they thought. How is he going to fulfill his word now? Well, here's how God solves the problem. According to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Joseph, who's Jesus' stepdad, well, he was a descendant of Jehoiakim and Solomon. Thus, Jesus was the successor to the royal line. But since God was his father and not Joseph, he didn't have the cursed blood of Jehoiakim bypassed. But the prophecy said Messiah had to be David's blood relative. That's where Luke's genealogy kicks in. Because Jesus' mother, Mary, was also a descendant of David, but through his son Nathan, not Jehoiakim. Jesus then was David's natural heir through Mary and his legal heir through Joseph. Problem solved. Nothing too difficult for the Lord, right? So these two sons become very significant. And that's why you see these two genealogies with a bit of a, a different record going back. One tracing it through Solomon, one tracing it through Nathan. This is why that's important. That's why those are there. Because God is able to fulfill his word now through that. Well, in chapter 4, Chapter 4 details the family of Judah, again, a very important tribe because this is the tribe that, again, the Messiah was going to come through. Now, earlier, there were a couple individuals in the family of Judah singled out for their sin and wickedness. Back in chapter 2, we see two guys, Ur and Achan. Remember, Achan, in the story of Joshua, hid some of the you know, stuff under his tent that he was not to do, caused sin in the camp. Well, there's an individual now singled out in chapter 4, also from the family of Judah. But now he's singled out not for sin, but he's singled out for his faithfulness. This man was named Jabez. And there's been much written about Jabez over the last number of years. A number one bestseller. How many people remember the Prayer of Jabez book? All right. Yeah. Okay. Now, maybe a lot written about Jabez in our, in our time, but there wasn't a lot written about Jabez in Scripture. In fact, right here, just a few verses in this chapter. Look at, at, at verse 9. Um, it says in chapter 4, verse 9, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. Now, I love this because Jabez, you know, he doesn't have any special upbringing. He wasn't of notable stock. He was on a level plane with all those around him. Yet, 
He is noted as more honorable than his brethren. Why? I would say it's because of his heart for God. He called upon God. He put his trust in God and relied on God. See, God wants your heart before he wants action. God's not placing people on a pedestal based on performance. He, he's basing that upon your heart for him. And I don't even like the, that, that imagery of, of God placing people on a pedestal. But what I'm saying is that you can be a standout for God, just like Jabez, by having a heart that's committed to the Lord. And notice, not only was Jabez not of notable descent, but he came into the world through kind of painful means. His very name means, I bore him in pain. Every time she's calling out, hey, Jabez, it's like, hey, you one that pained me great. It's like, thanks, mom. Thanks for that constant reminder of me bringing torture to your life, right? It's a reminder every day. But I'm thankful that though we might go through painful experiences, God has a way of turning those things around and bringing blessing out of them. And Jabez lived a blessed life. Like I said, there's been a lot made about this prayer of Jabez with the idea that if you pray it, it's going to prosper you. Now, I certainly wouldn't go that far, but I think we should definitely pray for the Lord's blessing in our lives. And we should pray like Jabez did for the Lord to enlarge our territory. That doesn't mean, God, come and bring me bigger houses, bigger, better cars, a bigger bank account, enlarge my territory. That's not what we're talking about here. But rather, Lord, could you expand my influence for you? Would you enlarge my territory that I might have a greater effect for you, a greater witness of you? Some believe that Jabez prayed this as he was occupying land in Israel. And this prayer was linked to seeing God drive out the enemies of the land and increase his borders. Hey, that's a good thing to pray, right? Lord, give us greater ground for you. May you continue to drive the enemies away that your light might shine greater, that we might even do greater things for you, God. That's a good thing to pray. And he prayed for the Lord's hand to be with them. The Lord's hand, that symbol of provision and strength, because truly without the Lord, we can do nothing, right? We need the Lord. Lord, let your hand be with me. And lastly, he prayed that he would be kept from evil and, and not cause pain. Again, his very name was that reminder of pain that he caused, but he wanted that cycle to stop. He wanted to be a blessing and live a life that was a reflection of God's blessing and joy. And this was prayed from a right heart. Why do we know that? Because God granted this to Jabez. Good prayer to pray ourselves. Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Good thing to look through. Well, let's skip over to the narrative that the writer of Chronicles really wants us to get to, and that's really getting us to the line uh, of David. But first, we briefly touch on the life of Saul. Again, we're, we're looking to get to where the chronicler here wants us to get to and really focus on. And so chapter 10 here, we look at the life of Saul. Well, really, actually, no, we don't really look at the life of Saul. We kind of just get right to the end of Saul. Let's just go right to the death of Saul. That's what is really only recorded here. Again, looking to get us right to David because Chronicles is being written with that spiritual perspective. He's more interested in detailing the things that will lead to the purpose of what God wants to do in bringing the temple, establishing, you know, the, the priesthood and the covenant with David. So this is where we want to get to. And so chapter 10 just really details for us the end of Saul. We don't even expand much on that. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. Because we look at the end of, of Saul here. We kind of skip right to his death. And give that perspective again of the consequences of sin and disobedience. Verse 13 of chapter 10. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord. Because he did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. Remember Saul. Saul started out with great potential. But along the way, he began to give in to the flesh to where the flesh had more say than the Lord did in his life. And, and here it's telling us he went and consulted a medium. He could have gone to the Lord, but he chooses to go to a medium, a spiritist. And as a result, Saul perished. He died. And the Philistines took him. They, they cut off his head and put it in the temple of Dagon. 
Saul started out well, but he ended up losing his Dagon head, right? So just a little pun there for you guys. Come on, people. That's gold right there. All right. So here we see that for that reason, because of Saul's disobedience, the kingdom is handed over to David and to his line. And and God made that clear to Saul even before he perished, before he died. Made that very clear. Remember Saul? He was the people's pick, full of potential, right? But he became full of himself instead of allowing the Lord to do that work in him. He was taller than everyone else. Remember, he's like just a head above everybody else, which is a, a lesson again that God chooses and prefers to use smaller people in much of what he wants to do. Just, I don't know if, you know, just a little, Saul was taller than everyone else. Here's the deal. He looked the part. He looked the part. He had everything together. It's like, this is the guy we want to be our king. He started off humble, but then he became proud. And he stopped listening, and he stopped seeking God. David, on the other hand, man, he didn't look the part, right? And remember when, when Samuel goes to, to anoint somebody from Jesse's family, Jesse brings in and all of his other sons, and Samuel's like, these aren't them, man. Maybe I had it wrong. Is there still another son? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, there's a, there's a young guy out in the pasture tending the flock. That can't be the guy. He was not the, the prominent people's pick. But this is exactly who God had in mind. Why? Because David had a heart after God. He was a man after God's own heart. David wasn't perfect, but he recognized his mistakes. He repented. He trusted the Lord. He was one that would often inquire of the Lord what to do. He was a man after God's own heart. Again, that's important for us because he's not perfect. He made mistakes. But he was a guy that continually wanted to seek the Lord. And when he made mistakes, would go to the Lord. That's what it means to have a heart after God. Lord, I want your best. I don't want to remain where I'm at. I want to continue to turn to you and seek you and be led of you. That really becomes the key to success in ministry and in life. To seek the Lord and follow obediently with what he said. God's not looking, again... For you to have all the, you know, everything in, in place in a sense of success being evaluated by all these things. God evaluates that success by your heart that's serving Him and being faithful to Him and what He has for you. So these two men are real contrasting examples of that, Saul and David. We'll look at David now, chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So David had been anointed previously. Remember at the home of Jesse? He was anointed again. Now he had to wait on the timing of the Lord when he would be gathered to his people and anointed again here now after Saul's removal where he would be again anointed as the lone king. Times are waiting. They can be tough, can't they? I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I don't like to wait. We live in a world where everything is like instant. They try to be, except for McDonald's. They're going backwards. It used to be instant. Now it's going backwards. What's going on? I don't know. I don't, that's a pet peeve of mine. But we like things instant. We like things right away. We don't like to wait. They can be tough. But those periods of waiting that we might have in our lives are not to be wasted. You know, I've often heard people say, you know, I'm just, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And it's, it sounds spiritual, but for some people, it becomes kind of that excuse for inactivity. Hey, you should get involved in that. Well, yeah, I'm just praying about that. I'm just waiting on the Lord. And it sounds, ooh, oh, okay, I'll leave you. And sometimes we use that as simply an excuse to do nothing. It becomes an excuse for inactivity. But look at the response of the people during this time that David has been in that period and season of waiting for the Lord to bring him to that place of of prominence as king. Notice what it said in verse 2. They all said, listen, 
Even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. David, you were the guy being active in serving, being faithful. You were the one that was truly leading us. David was active. He was busy. He was serving, waiting for the next step where action from the Lord doesn't mean that you would draw into inactivity. Man, you might be in a season where you feel the Lord is saying, he just, just wait. But wait doesn't mean be still. Wait means just keep worshiping, keep serving the Lord, keep seeing what he has for you. What does a waiter do in a restaurant? They wait on you. Could you imagine if a waiter said, I'm just waiting on you, and he sits in a corner and does nothing in, in the restaurant? No, that's McDonald's, yeah. That would be McDonald's right there. Let's stop and pray for McDonald's right now. Okay. No. They're waiting on you. They're coming. They're serving. They're active. They're busy. That's what we need to be doing with the Lord. That's what David was doing. He was faithful in those things. And look at verse 9 of chapter 11. It says, So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Why, why did David do so great? It's because God was with him. I think God was with him because David was with God. See, we can look at this and think, God's just following David along wherever he's going, looking at his blessing, everything he does. David, where are you going next? Okay, hold on, I'm coming. You know, let me bless that work. David, where are you going? All right, David, I'm with you, David. Don't worry, I'm with you. I'll bless that work. God's not following David around like a little puppy dog. David is a man who's blessed, who saw God with him because David was a man that was with God, serving him, being faithful to him. David was quick to consult the Lord, seek the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. He was with God. And so people saw that David did great things because God was with him. Look at verse 10, just reading on in chapter 11. Now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, uh, David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Verse 11. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Jashobim, the son of a Hakmonite, chief of the captains. He had lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, who was one of the three mighty men. Wouldn't that be great to have a dad named Dodo? That's your father. Awesome Dodo over there, yeah. Verse 13, he was with David at, at Pass Damim. Now there the Philistines were gathered for battle and there was a piece of ground full of barley so the people fled from the Philistines. But they stationed themselves in the middle of the field, defended it and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Let me just touch on a couple of these guys here. Because these mighty men of David, significant. Joshua Beam, he takes down 300 people. Do you ever say, what could I possibly do? I'm just one man. I'm only one person. Don't tell that to Joshua Beam. Because Joshua Beam is a guy that's like saying... What do we got up against it? Against us? Hey, let me at him. I think Joshua Peem was mighty because he was a man that realized what God can do. He's not out there counting, doing the math, working out the odds. He just lifts up his spear and takes down 300. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, with the same account being written, it records that he took down 800 people. So somewhere we got a copyist error, but whether it's 300 or 800, I'm impressed. That's incredible. That's significant. One man does that. And then you have Eliezer. He stood his ground in the barley field. It tells us in 2 Samuel 23.10, and I love this. It says that he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. I love that picture. Because the Bible refers to the word of God as the sword, right? Sword of the Spirit. And we're called repeatedly in the Bible to hold fast the word. See, so many people are getting knocked around. They're getting knocked down. They're losing ground because they don't have a firm hold on God's word. They've got a loose grip on scriptures and they're putting confidence elsewhere. May we, like Eliezer, have our hand stuck to the sword. Frozen to God's word and be immovable in that which pertains to God and to his word. Let's hold tightly to it. Listen, moving on to chapter 13 here. 
We have the account where David desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant now to Jerusalem. Remember, it had been previously captured by the Philistines. The Philistines were getting plagued. Remember, that was brought in the temple of Dagon and their idol Dagon falls down on his face. They pick it up. The next day they go in and it's fallen again, smashed. And they're like, now we got to get this Ark out of here. And so it finally gets passed on. It's been sitting at a, at a home for a while. And David is like, it's time to bring the Ark now from Kiriath-Jerim to where we are. Now you remember the scene, right? The, the, the people here, David and his men, they followed the principle that the Philistines did in capture, when they captured the Ark from battle. And they put it on a cart and they moved it. So the people now, they, they followed that same model. Like, well, Philistines did it this way. That seems pretty easy. Put it on a cart, wheel it down. That takes a lot of you know, the strain off of us. And then as the cart is moving, the oxen stumbled. And remember, Uzzah is there. And he reached out his hand to steady the ark. And he was struck down by the Lord, dead. Verses 9 to 10 of chapter 13 record that first. Now that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? We read that and we think, God, this guy's just trying to help so nothing bad happens to the ark. Why would you allow that to happen? And you see, God is doing something here. And he's showing his people, especially in this new era of David's reign, and especially as the people, remember, are, are coming back from captivity in Babylon, being reminded of these stories, God is seeking to show them something, that God is holy, and he needs to be revered as holy. That's what got the people into trouble, which brought them to captivity in Babylon. And in this new era, when, when David is establishing this, this kingdom now as a man after God's own heart, God is saying, I need to be revered as holy. These things that I've said are holy, indeed are holy, we, we can't defile them. It's interesting that most of David's failures are omitted from Chronicles except this one. And again, I suggest it's because God wants his people to know that he desires holiness in them and as they make their way back from pagan country in Babylon, it's important that they leave those things behind and they start this life of holiness with the Lord. Because it was that callousness to those things that got them in trouble to begin with. So it becomes a pertinent reminder to walk in God's ways and that is the way of holiness. But again, holiness is not heavy. It's not a burden. It's holiness that I believe leads us to happiness, to joy. It's living those lives. And, and, and sometimes we, we think of this word holiness as being this crazy religious level that I can never attain to. Holiness means I got to walk around in some kind of robe, you know, have periods of time where I just don't talk or eat or leave the house, you know, or where we, we, we kind of put on these levels of holiness that we think, oh, that's too much for me. Holiness just means, man, I'm, I'm living set apart to the Lord. And I'm, I'm living a life that I'm desiring to honor Him and bring glory to Him. That's what we've been created to do. And when we fulfill those things, man, it's holiness that leads to greater happiness and joy in the Lord. Heavy, holiness is not a heavy. Man, it's a blessing when we do. Chapters 14 and 16, we see David being established in Jerusalem. We see the ark eventually being brought into Jerusalem and then into the tabernacle. Well, let me draw your attention to something that was a real key to David's success and is a real key to ours. Again, it's that idea of just seeking God. Let me give you an example here of that. Chapter 14, let's go to chapter 14, verse 8. Here's what we read. Now, now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? The Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. So they went up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. Then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore they called the name of that place Baal Perazim, which means master of 
breakthroughs. That's cool, right? So David has enemies coming against him, no doubt. But what does he do? He seeks the Lord. He inquires of God. Hey, shall I go up against them, God? You would think, that's just, well, yeah, they're enemies. They're coming against you. Go fight. But David says, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want to accomplish in this? He seeks the Lord. That's a good thing to do. And God delivers. I love that. And he delivers in a way where David realizes, man, God broke through. They named the place that. Master of breakthroughs. Hey, whatever you might be encountering in life, the things that are coming against you, understand that we have a God that is able to break through. Sometimes you might look at that obstacle in front of you, that problem, that difficulty, and think, how is this ever going to get resolved? And look to God. Seek the Lord. Because he is the master of breakthroughs. Are you seeking him for those things? But the Philistines, they're relentless, and they, they attack again. Now, David had already received... Right, The green light to go up against the Philistines. And David could have easily just said, Oh, the Philistines are back? All right, people, you know what to do. We did it last time. Let's go again. But look at verse 13. And the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley. Therefore, David inquired again of God. And God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Circle around them. And come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So David did as God commanded him. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. See, David didn't take God for granted here. He didn't just kind of assume, well, God's done it before this way. So obviously we know the formula. Let's just go at it again the same way. No, it says, David inquired again of the Lord. And God says, "Ah, don't go up against them. Instead, circle around. I've got a different way for you this time around. David doesn't assume. He seeks. And God has a different strategy. But the same results. Defeating the enemy. You know, maybe you've been in a place where you've just kind of been coasting along and thinking, why isn't God doing what I thought he'd do. Because he's done it this way before. I'm kind of doing the same thing. Why isn't God doing it again? But sometimes we just find ourselves in a rut. And we are doing the same things. God says, man, i got something different for you now. Are you seeking him? Are you seeking what he has for you for each new day? Keep seeking the Lord. Keep seeking his word, trusting in him. See what he's got for you each and every day. Lord, what do you have for me today? What do you want to do? God, let me be sure to be following you. Well, chapter 16 ends now as a time of praise as they've seen the ark now come into, the, uh, come into Jerusalem as they've seen enemies driven back. And chapter 16 ends with this sweet praise, giving thanks to all that God has done. Chapter 17 now is again that Very important chapter that I've alluded to. This is the Davidic covenant that we see here now. It's a major theme in 1 Chronicles. The chronicler referred to the Davidic covenant seven times in his book through 1 and 2 Chronicles. Many students of Chronicles, they have regarded the Davidic covenant as the heart of these books because it established David's kingly line with promises that relate to the temple and the priesthood. The temple and the priesthood are two major themes of these books. God brought them under David accrual forever, as the chronicler revealed. Another unifying theme is the steps taken toward the building of the temple. And they include identification of the builder, as we'll see in chapter 17, the necessary political conditions, as again, further conquests of David are recorded. Then we'll see the site that's given in chapter 21, materials and plans given, and the personnel, the the priesthood and the people that will be serving there in the remaining chapters. So these things are all laid out basically over this next little while. And again, that major theme, that building of the temple, that's linked to, again, this Davidic covenant. So the chapter starts out with David's desire to build God a permanent house where the Ark of the Covenant could indeed dwell forever. It's a noble desire. It's a good thing that David requests, but God has other plans. David, remember, he's got this palace built and he's looking at himself going, man, I got everything together, but there's the Ark of the Covenant just dwelling in a tent. It's in the old tabernacle. It's in a tent and David's thinking, 
We need something better for the Lord. That's a noble thing. That's a good thing. Look at what we read, however. Chapter 17, go down to verse 7. And this is after David shared with Nathan. Nathan said, go ahead, David, build it. That sounds good. But then Nathan got a, a word from the Lord that night. And God speaks to Nathan saying, I got other plans. And here Nathan reveals it to David in verse 7. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Oh, sorry, this is God speaking to Nathan here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I've made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, also I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. Verse 11. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision so nathan spoke to david so notice this here god's not upset with david god's not coming to david saying ah you're not going to do this david no i think i think god is blessed by david's heart and desire here but what does god say david i'm actually going to build you a house i'm going to do an incredible work in you and through you it's a promise made to david and it's through David that out of his line is going to come the Messiah, whose kingdom will be forever. It's pointing ahead to Jesus. Solomon, David's initial son, right? He's going to build the temple. And that's what, what is spoken of there in, in verse 12. He shall build me a, a house. Yes, Solomon's going to do that. But the throne being established, that's going to come through David's greater son. Jesus Christ. See, this covenant is woven throughout Scripture. This is God's plan of redemption. Now, after the people are taken to Babylon, remember, the throne ceased to exist. There was no king. Even when they came back to the land, now, they don't have a king. And I'm sure many people are wondering, how is this going to be accomplished? When Jesus was born in the world, Jesus had no throne to occupy. Remember, Israel was not a sovereign nation at this time, but Jesus came the first time to establish his rule in the hearts of people. He came to provide salvation. That's why so many people, they kind of like questioned Jesus because they thought, if you're the Messiah, well, you're here to build your kingdom, to establish your throne and rule. Hey, Jesus will do that, but that's going to come at a second coming when he brings an end to all the nations coming against God and he brings in that millennial kingdom the thousand year reign of jesus here on the earth that's when we'll see this davidic covenant resuming and being fulfilled remember jesus said even to Pilate in john eighteen thirty six, my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would fight so that i should not be delivered to the jews but now my kingdom is not from here jesus says my work when I came the first time is to do a work internally to bring salvation and bring redemption. And later he will come again to establish his reign and rule. So David is given this wonderful promise through his line the Messiah would come. And that's why that New Testament begins, the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Matthew and Luke both record this line tracing Jesus back to David. Right? Because that's important. Many self-proclaimed messiahs have come. But they all got to be able to trace their lineage back to David. We see people even today emerging on the scene. I'm the messiah. Well, where were you born? Well, I was born in a little town in Mexico. What tribe are you with? I don't know. Don't have any link to that. Many people have come, try to claim themselves to be the messiah. They come from all over, but there's only one. There's only one man that's fulfilled all these prophecies 
that have been given in God's word. Only one man has done that. It's Jesus Christ. Now, in the rest of First Chronicles, David gets underway now to prepare things for the building of the temple. All right? God said, you're not going to do it, but here's the great thing. David says, I may not be the builder, but guess what I can do? I can be a pretty good planner. I can be a preparer. I can get these things into action. And that's a good reminder for us. Because we may not all be those that are on the front line, seeing things coming together, being the building people, but we can play a huge part in the planning process, in praying for the work to unfold, doing stuff behind the scenes, and helping those that maybe are in that place of action do it better. You don't have to be inactive in the work of God just because you may not be the one carrying out the actual work. And here David goes about doing that. Well, let's jump over to chapter 22. Chapter 22, look at verse 5. Let's read a few verses here. It says there, verse 5, chapter 22. Now David said, Solomon, or he said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I'll be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper, and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding, and give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments which, with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and a good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So a great word that David says, David and Solomon, I'm about to leave here, but I prepared these things for you. And now David is charging Solomon, hey, be strong, be of good courage, don't fear. And above all, take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments because that's again the key to prospering. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments. To uphold God's word. To live according to what God has laid out for you. It's simple. Now in chapter 23, we begin to lay out again all the division of the Levites, the priestly tribe. Remember, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The, the priests came from the line of Aaron. All right? Um, in chapter 24, we see the division of the priests under the line of Aaron. Chapter 25, we see David laying out the, the people involved in the temple, like the worship leaders, the musicians, the singers. There was just great praise going on around the temple. Chapter 26, we see the record of the ushers or the gatekeepers at the temple. Yeah, David had people there serving as ushers, a very important job to have. Ushers, greeters, that oftentimes is that first line, you know, a defense when somebody comes into the church. Man, so those greeters, the ushers, that's can make it or break it, you know, for people coming in, right? Are they happy? Are they smiling? And and that's a great ministry to have. Sometimes again we can think, oh, I'm just I'm just a greeter. Hey, thank you. That's a wonderful job to have. And that has huge responsibility. Our people Looking at you when they come in saying, hey man, I feel good about being here. Or are they looking for the nearest exit after running into you? That's an important job. Huge responsibility. And I thank all those serving in that way. Chapter 27 is all about the military divisions now that David lays out. There were 12 captains who would serve the king and lead a division of 24,000 men. 
David's mighty men. Remember, we mentioned some of them back in chapter 11. They served as the captains over these divisions. Each of these 12 divisions would serve for a month. Chapter 28 is the public leadership meeting in Jerusalem now, as David gathers all the people, the leaders, and really just to announce his plans for the temple. Look at chapter 28. Let's read verse 9 and 10. Chapter 28, verse 9. David says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willful mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. How is Solomon to serve the Lord here? David says, with a loyal heart and a willful mind. Sometimes we don't understand what God is up to. Right? Ever feel that way? What is God doing here? But here's what David says. Serve him with a loyal heart. Be loyal. You may not know what God is up to, but be loyal. Why? Because he will always prove himself faithful. All that God does is good. And sometimes we don't feel like serving God. But do so with a willing mind. Because the blessings that flow when we are faithful will give you reasons to rejoice. You may not always know what God's up to. Be loyal because he's faithful. You may not always feel like serving God, but have a willing mind and be faithful because he will give you reasons to rejoice and be blessed in that. And ultimately, the Lord knows what's going on in all this. He's searching the hearts, it says, and the intent of thoughts. Nothing is hidden from him, right? God's not hiding anything from us. He simply wants us to seek him. And if we do, we will indeed find him. So David gives us great charge and encouragement to his son. And he ends that charge with these simple words. Be strong and do it. Be strong and do it. All of David's preparatory work would be for nothing if Solomon didn't move into action. And there was nothing holding him back but himself. Right? We have to be sure to not let any lame excuses get in our way of serving God either. Sometimes we need to just say, what are you holding back for? Be strong and do it. Sometimes we need to have that little pep talk with ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Just know that as we link ourselves to the Lord, he's not trusting you and your strength to get the work done. He's saying, be strong in me. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. There are times we just need to give ourselves that little pep talk and tell ourselves, what are you waiting for? Just do it. Now the book ends with David securing the offering that would provide for all the building of the temple. And people came and contributed, and guess what? It just led to great praise. Usually we think giving is going to lead to emptiness and sadness, but not here. It says, they gave the loyal heart willingly, and it led to praise. Here's, here's how we'll end it here. Chapter 29, verse 9 to 13. Here's what it says. Chapter 29, verse 9, Then the people rejoiced, For they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced greatly. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. All that we have is from the Lord. And may we be honoring the Lord with all that we have, not just our possessions, but our time, our talents, all that we are. Let us recognize, Lord, it's all yours. Let me serve you. Let me be faithful. And as they did, they thanked the Lord. They praise Him because they see the greatness of God in and through it all. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we 
come before you here tonight. And we indeed do recognize the greatness of our God, Lord. And that, again, we can do nothing apart from you. Lord, help us to see clearly here tonight that, Lord, you've given us much. And you've blessed us so abundantly. And may we be those that are serving you with a loyal heart, with a willing mind. Let nothing get in the way of that. May we seek you always, Lord, in all things. As we've seen here tonight, just the key to prospering, the key to being blessed is seeking you and walking in obedience, Lord. So keep us in that place of doing just that. Let nothing get in the way. Let us not be distracted. Let us not make excuses. Let us be those that will just say, be strong and do it. And let us honor you and serve you faithfully as you've been so good and faithful to us. So we thank you and we praise your name here tonight. We ask in your name. Amen.